And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm one of your hosts, Maximus Hunter. And I'm Ren Wadsworth, and we are joined in the studio by Katie Knowles. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Design and Merchandising here at CSU, and I'm also the curator of the Avenir Museum of Design and Merchandising. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us today, Katie. So um, for those who don't know about the Avenir Museum, uh, what's the museum, where is it, and uh, what's your role as a curator there? So the museum is located at 216 East Lake Street. We are part of the University Center for the Arts, the old Fort Collins High School building on the east side of college. Um, But we do have a separate entrance there around the corner on Lake Street from the main UCA. And we are the historic clothing and textile collection of the university. So the collection's been around since um, about the 1950s and it now numbers about 25,000 artifacts from around the world, representing all kinds of cultures across time and place. And we are open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Thanks, Katie. So where do you get these clothes from? Our collection is 99.9% donated to us. Um, We have a very small, limited budget for purchasing selected items to add to the collection, but we have a great relationship with people from across the country, really, uh, that support the collection. And it is uh, something that people are interested in, including their items in our collection in particular, because it is used to teach students at CSU. And so I teach classes in the museum building and part of the collection comes into the classroom and students are able to study the actual historic garments and textiles from these different cultures and time periods as part of the learning experience in class. So what kind of classes do you teach with these artifacts? I teach a class called Historic Textiles, which is a global history of textiles from around the world from ancient times up into the present. And then I also teach a class called Historic Costume, which is a class that starts in ancient civilizations in um, the Near East and Europe and goes up into Western Europe and the United States and the history of fashion and dress in those places into the early 21st century. Cool. Okay, so in your exhibit, um, and in your opinion, how has fashion been used as a statement by women to fight for equal rights? So clothing is something that is a common experience for people uh, um, across time in the United States. And this exhibit, Respect the Dress, Clothing and Activism in U.S. Women's History, we're focusing in on how people who participated in women's rights activism from the beginning of of the nation up into recent time were perceived through their clothing, as well as how they tried to communicate their own role and perception of themselves to other people. And this is a common theme that we see as a reason that people use clothing in order to define who they are and how society also tries to define them for them. Um, In the case of this exhibition, we've centered it around the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment in the United States, which is giving women the right to vote. 
So we have a large section that looks at uh, the white dresses that women in the 19-teens were wearing. And this was sort of an unofficial uniform that women's suffrage activists adopted where you could identify them as supporting the cause for women's rights. But the style of dress that they were wearing and these all-white dresses were already fashionable in that decade. So they're taking something that was already fashionable and kind of flipping it and making it their own. And they were combining it a lot of the time with accessories that are purple and yellow. And that color combination of white, purple, and yellow became this symbol, this marker for people who were supporters of the women's suffrage movement, uh, including men who would wear things like pins or ribbons on their hats to signify with that three color combination that they were supporting the movement as well. So you talked a little bit about the women's suffrage movement. Do you have any other examples of how uh, clothing was used? For women's rights activism? Yeah. Yeah, so the exhibit starts and it talks about um, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, the popular fashions of the time, and then it compares that to some of the more radical kind of subcultural moments. And one of those is in the 1850s, that's a time period where the fashion for women in the United States is to wear these big round skirts, the big hoop skirts that we often think about when we think about the Victorian period. And that is quite cumbersome to move around in and really limited women's physical activity. And so there was a dress reform movement that we often call it the bloomer style and these were pairs of very loose trousers the people who wore the style at the time would call it would have called them turkish trousers they're kind of look like mc hammer pants (laughs) Um, and then they would wear a shorter skirt kind of a knee length still pretty fluffy full skirt that had a bunch of petticoats underneath it to keep it full And this allowed for some increased movement. They also did not wear corsets. Um, There was belief by medical practitioners in the uh, middle 1800s that corsets were too restrictive and were causing internal health issues. It's still debated about how medically accurate that is. Um, Certainly if you are lacing a corset too tight around you, that's going to cause some health issues. But corsets are also methods of support and improve your posture so they're changing up what they're wearing wearing these different kinds of styles and a lot of the women who did adopt this dress reform style in the 1850s were also part of radical social justice movements like prison reform mental health reform abolition and women's rights And so this radical style of dress becomes associated with political radicalism and it falls out very quickly. And so not a lot of people adopt it and it sort of fails as a health fashion moment. So uh, that, I think that's really interesting how these dresses come to adopt different meanings uh, societally. Um, And it's it's all it's it's rhetorical in a way, um, especially you were talking earlier about the white dress and how that was originally in fashion, and then that was adopted by the you know the women's rights movement. Uh, how do you think, as a culture, we create that kind of meaning and we change that kind of meaning? Well, that's a that's a big question. I know, right? Um, it a lot of the time I think it happens organically, but it also is something that people purposefully 
take on um, as a project. And so we see this happening in all different kinds of cultures across time and place where dress functions as a way to communicate what group of people you belong to, but also to set yourself apart as an individual at the same time. And when we have these group styles that kind of come up and are defining you as part of that specific kind of subset, um, whether that is through gender difference or social class or something like um, participation in a political movement, once that cause is, in the case of a political movement, achieved, then there takes on this kind of different meaning of remembering. So one of the things that we see happening in more recent times, in the 1970s, in the 1990s, and now in the 2010s, female politicians in the United States frequently wear all-white garments, and they are calling back to the memory of this earlier style. So you get this different kind of social function and the function of remembering these past styles, but in a very specific way. Interesting. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I feel like that was a <laughs> really a big, big question. question to answer, yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of the fundamental things that people who study fashion history as a field really debate among themselves as scholars is kind of the, the ways that fashions rise and fall. Um, and where fashions come from in specific cases. And it's there's different moments of inspiration and different ways of tracking how those changes occur and happen. And it's like you said uh, in the very beginning, you know, when fashion is all usually someone trying to say something about themselves, and there are all kinds of implicit meanings that some people may understand, some people may not, and that can change. And it, it is a very complicated, growing, changing thing. Exactly. And you have those self-motivations, but you also, again, have society itself trying to define you as well um, and and reacting to your fashion choices in ways that you sometimes don't anticipate or intend. Like I dyed my hair pink once and everyone loved it. I thought people would be weirded out. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You just never know. (laughs) Wait, you actually dyed your hair pink? Oh, yeah. When I was 19. I would love to see a picture of that. I I can show you a picture. (laughs) So something I'm curious about is, um, were these women risking their position in society doing this? Were some of these women even risking their lives doing this? Was it dangerous for them to be changing up how they dressed? Because I know in the past, dress has been something that was so controlled by the patriarchy and stuff like that. Yeah, and so there are places in the exhibition where we're talking about women who are purposefully conforming to fashion in order to fit in because their political beliefs are not fitting in. And they're trying to maintain a certain level of expected gender performance so that they are taken seriously for their political beliefs and arguments and advancing this cause of women's suffrage and other women's rights issues. But then you also have women who are rejecting the current fashion, um, who are kind of embracing radicalism in all aspects of their life. Both of those motivations, both of those kind of approaches to using dress in order to promote your political agenda for these women can result in backlash. Um, And there, there are instances in U.S. history for women who are verbally mostly attacked or ridiculed 
for their choices in dress. And this can include women who are being too fashionable, spending too much money and too much of their time and attention on dressing well, and they are seen as frivolous and silly and wasteful. So, you, oh, sorry. Sorry. So you, you get those kinds of examples of people. Um, in the 1910s, a lot of women who were protesting outside of the White House or marching in marches that happened in big cities were arrested and incarcerated. And then you get a story about their experiences. Many of those women are coming from middle and upper class families. A lot of them were married. They're considered to be very socially respectable women. And now they're in places that are in terrible living conditions, um, not given supplied proper clothing, or they're, they're still wearing their own clothing that they were arrested and, and incarcerated in, and it becomes dirty and dingy and damaged. And they are in spaces that are incorrect for them and their social standing, but they are surrounded by women of lower classes. And they're does become an, a raised awareness of living conditions for incarcerated women and a lot of the suffragists who are arrested in that um, become more actively involved and vocal about prison reform as a result of their own experience in those conditions. Uh, that includes suffragists who went on a hunger strike in one case and were force-fed, which is a very violent, painful process. Um, and they were protesting their incarceration as political prisoners who were exercising their right to civil disobedience by protesting outside in public spaces. And so that's not directly connected necessarily to the things that they were wearing, but those experiences most certainly, um, their behavior was seen as threatening to society and they were punished for it physically. Wow. So, a hundred years now since the 19th Amendment has passed, um, is that what inspired you to curate this exhibit? Yes. Um, I thought it was a great moment to stop and kind of stop, celebrate that and to really tease out the ways that the history of fashion is represented in the Avenir Museum's collection of clothing throughout U.S. history and how we can tie representations of fashion to representations of women's rights activists and tell this story through of of the women's suffrage movement through clothing and fashion it's exciting it is exciting i am glad that it's been a hundred years i wish it had been 200 years but <laughs> we we are taking a moment definitely to stop and and remember and celebrate that and to understand how um this moment in our nation's history was achieved and also the time after it. I kind of have, haven't really addressed a lot of, of the time after 1920, but we do have things that go up all the way to um, a uh, hat that is on loan from a current graduate student at CSU that was worn at the March, um, Women's March in Denver in, in January 2017. Oh, nice. Kind of the next iteration of the unofficial women's rights uniform is the pink hats that were in that uh, moment. So taking it all the way up into what is being defined as the fashion of women's rights right now. That's actually, uh, that's a perfect segue. It's, uh, I think, the last thing we want to talk about today. Yeah, so we wanted to know, so since it's been 100 years, we wanted to kind of ask you what you think is coming next for women's rights and 
how you see fashion being played in society nowadays um, with women's politicians, women politicians, and just uh, movements across the nation in general. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that's really interesting right now is we're having a lot of discussion about um, sexual violence and sexual harassment, um, and that is addressed in the exhibition as well. And often that is tied to blaming the victim of an attack because of how she is dressed. And protests against um, sexual assault and sexual violence often include people who are wearing clothing that is seen as um, shameful or too revealing and are communicating, it doesn't matter how I dress myself, that doesn't give you permission to attack me in this way. Um, And so I think we are in a really interesting cultural moment for thinking about the role of clothing and dress in women's rights history. In terms of where we are in the wider kind of cultural moment about fashion, gender bending fashion is really in right now. And I think that's very interesting to think about the ways that um, the, the division of a binary gender system of men and women is being broken down and the expressions of non-binary folks are coming through right now in high fashion runway shows. And that is all is the conversation between high fashion and street fashion of non-binary people having this impact on how we all dress and how we choose to express our gender. And it's becoming less evident um, when you see somebody on the street and how they are, are dressed right now to understand what their gender expression is. And so that's an interesting thing to think about. Well, the non-essentialism of gender kind of opens up a lot more fashionable highways that you can you could explore and go down. Yes. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add about the exhibit or the history of the clothing in the um, exhibit? I know you said you had some events you wanted to talk about. We do. And so I'll just mention that the exhibition is up um, on view in the in the gallery until May 23rd. So you do have a little bit of time to come check it out. And again, the museum's open Tuesday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we do have a couple of special speakers coming um, related to this exhibition. On Thursday, March 12th at 7 p.m., we have um, Dr. Inev Rinpenovich Fox, who is a professor at Case Western Reserve in Ohio, is gonna come and she specializes in talking about the history of fashion and politics and women's history. And then on Thursday, April 23rd at 7 p.m., we have a program that is going to be conducted by staff from the Molly Brown House Museum that is in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Molly Brown was a suffragist, and so they're going to talk about the things that she wore and how her fashion choices would have changed in the first two decades of the 20th century. Um, And I will also just say that we do have um, a Facebook and we also have an Instagram. We're at Avenir Museum and you can find out more about our exhibitions. We have a couple of other exhibits up right now, too, Um, more about our public programs and sometimes behind the scenes stuff that is going on at the museum on our social media. And we also have a website, avenir.colostate.edu. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you very much. We are excited to come and talk to everybody about this exhibit. It's been a